to the Bookcase Book Nerds, where we make the case for all kinds of books. I've been walking down memory lane for the last couple of weeks, and I've been listening to older episodes, and I've forgotten that those are things I used to throw around. So I'm going to bring them back. We're bringing them back. Book Nerds, making the case for all kinds of books, and I should introduce... I'm Kate Gibson, by the way, and I should probably remind you I also have a co-host, if you care. Well, I'm glad you got around to that, and I'm glad you got around to me. Thank you. I'm Charlie Gibson. I am Kate's father, and she suffers me each week um, to be a part of the bookcase, which I am delighted to be. We have, I think, a very, very interesting book for you this week, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. Kate and I have this agreement that unless we both love a book, we won't bring it on or we have to find something really redeeming in it if we don't particularly like it. But in this case, I think it both has a five-star review from you and from me. Yeah. I mean, when I say we make the case for all kinds of books, I feel like I'm going to make a hard case for the book we have today. I, I almost want to be a bit of a bookseller to our listeners on this one. The book is called Martyr. Exclamation point. No, that's not spelled out. That is actual punctuation. But I just, I want to make sure that you guys know it's there. Martyr. It's a novel by Kaveh Akbar. It is poetic. Well, he himself is a published poet, but it is poetic. It is lyrical. There are some surreal elements to it. It is also very funny. It is a beautiful book. And really, I hadn't heard a lot of, a ton of lip service about it beforehand. And it was one of those books that was a revelation to, to me. So please, I recommend that you pick it up. Well, if you, if you don't know going in, although we just told you <laughs> that he's a poet, you will realize it as you read it, not only in the brief poems that he introduces into the book as explainers of who his principal character, whose name is Cyrus Shams, S-H-A-M-S, but the language itself, his prose is poetic at times. And it's interesting, as you'll hear in our conversation, he makes the point that in a book of poetry, and he has two published, each word, and there's about 10,000 words, each word becomes so critical in poetry. But as he says, the same thing's true in prose. And you have to worry about that, even though you're writing, as in this case, 80 or 85,000 words. As he says, no word is one-eighth as important as a word in poetry that you have to, a poet approaching prose, has to be very concerned by each word. And that makes his prose, I think, so much more enjoyable to read. Yes. The title of the book is Martyr. The main character that you mentioned- Cyrus. Cyrus. Right. His mother- dies in the shooting down of Flight 655, Iran Air Flight 655 on July 3rd, 1988. She's one of the passengers. And as a result, I think he has struggled his whole life with the idea that her death was meaningless, that she was in her death a statistic. And so as a result, I think he starts to research, can death have meaning? And so he wants to write about death and meaning and martyrdom and the main character is Iranian. So there are a lot of complexities wound into all of that. And again, it's also compulsively readable and quite funny. But at times you're not sure exactly what you're reading. Now he's very clear. There's 32 sections, not just chapters, but sections of the book, almost like stanzas in a poem. They could sort of survive on their own as short stories. But they build very interestingly, and he is. He's thinking, how do I make, first of all, when he's, the book starts, he is dissolute. He is a, a drunk. He's a drug addict. He decides he needs to reform himself. Uh, he gets clean, decides to write a book about martyrs, about people who 
make their lives matter by the way of their death. But I think it is really more about mattering, about how you do that. And Cyrus gets interested in what he calls earth martyrs, which are people who make their lives matter. And it doesn't have to be necessarily connected to a martyr death. Yeah, I this book, I don't know, I'm going to sound a little bit like a Broadway reviewer. I mean, this book made me laugh. It made me cry. <laughs> but I really, this book, there have been a few uh, new writers that we have read uh, when we've done this podcast whose books have knocked the wind out of me. I said I was listening to old podcasts uh, because in some ways this book, it was a revelation to me the same way Sadiq Fafana's book was a revelation to me, uh, stories from the tenant downstairs. And this book knocked the wind out of me. <laughs> it was beautiful and funny. And when I was done, I kind of went, oof, and I didn't want it to end, yeah. which I think speaks to his talent. Yeah. Well, he brings all these disparate parts together so well at the end. And sometimes, you, you know, you're not quite sure how everything's going to fit together at the end. And can he give an ending which is worthy of his beginnings. And he, and I think he does in this case with a very interesting twist in the plot. I don't mean to give anything away. That really pays it all off. Interesting guy. First novel. First novel, which he has worked at, as he will tell you, for years and years and years. But he is at heart a poet. Although, as he says, he wants to be now a novelist and a poet, which is an interesting cross-section of disciplines. I really like the book. It could be could be foreboding to people, but I hope it won't be. The name of the book, as Katie has said, Martyr, with an exclamation point, Kaveh Akbar, A-K-B-A-R, his last name, Our Conversation. Kaveh Akbar, it is a pleasure, a real pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I am always so admiring of first-time novel authors. Martyr is the book as I read it, I kept thinking, what is his definition of martyrdom or being a martyr? What is it? First of all, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you both so much for having me. It's my luck to get to be in conversation with you. I spent about 85,000 words trying to define it and then <laughs> he put an ISBN number on it, <laughs> right? And so, you know, if, if I had anything more quippy than that, you know, I wouldn't have needed the whole novel, right? <laughs> I think that it has to do with sacrifice, obviously, and I think it has to do with sacrifice to something that is larger than yourself. To Cyrus Shams, who is your protagonist, mm -hmm. it always seemed to me that he was looking at martyrdom in the focus of a meaningful life, mm -hmm. that to make a meaningful life, you had to have a meaningful death, and that it had to be for something, as you say, a cause larger. I tend to associate it with religion. But why did you have him so obsessed with needing to die for something in order to make his life matter? Cyrus is not particularly compelled to stay in the world, right? That is a big part of his psychological, psycho-spiritual, psychopathological, whatever you want to call it, makeup, right? Is that he doesn't feel particularly committed to remaining alive, right? But he doesn't want to waste his death, right? That's what he keeps saying. He doesn't want to, if he's going to die, right? There are ways to leverage one's death to make a statement, to make a difference in some way or another. And so he sets out to research people who have done that. And you mentioned that you associate the word martyr with a kind of theological valence or with a religious valence, right? And he's particularly interested in secular martyrs, you know, what he comes to call earth martyrs, right? People who die for something other than, you know, that capital G God in heaven and the, or the promise of like a, a better hereafter that would reward them for their 
terrestrial sacrifice or whatever. I'm interested, too, because we've talked about martyrdom in terms of death, obviously, death Mm -hmm. being the important part of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And yet your dedication in the book is to the martyrs who live. What did you mean by that? And when did that become a part of your flyleaf? (laughs) That's a beautiful question. Again, this is so I'm in the dawn of this book being part of the consciousness of anyone who's not blood related to or married to me, you know, and so (laughs) such questions haven't had to consider how to put them into language, right? What feels intuitively or organically right to me in my head, you know, I I haven't had to wrap language around that or throw flower on the ghost of the idea. The dedication for the book is for the martyrs who live. And I mean it literally that I don't necessarily believe that death is an absolute prerequisite for martyrs or for martyrdoms. Um, I think that there are ways in which one can give their lives to a cause that is larger than themselves and still remain alive, right? Mm. And I think that there are examples of that in the book. And I also think that there are ways in which, like art, martyrdom is a way to become eternal, right? We, we mm. continue talking about the martyrs. We continue to revere the martyrs. We, you know, And I mean this both in a religious sense and in a secular sense, right? There are ways in which it sort of cements your name onto the mantle of eternity or onto the, you know, it prevents the waves of oblivion from lapping at your shores like they do with the rest of us. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there are several valences of meaning to me and they all feel significant. Although it's interesting because martyrdom is such a foreign concept in the U.S. Or at least I had not heard of martyrdom until I lived through September 11th, 2001. Sure. When you went to the publishing powers that be and said, guess what? I want a broader book on martyrdom. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) was anybody like, for the U.S., are you crazy? Well, and it's not... It's not just a book about martyrdom, but it's a book about martyrdom with a name that says Kava Akbar underneath it, right? That will be sold (laughs) in airports or, you know, whatever, Barnes and Noble. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, if this book was written by Bill Williams or, you know, John Smith or whatever, (laughs) right? That's a very different cover. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I'm aware of that. The reason I ask all this is it occasioned in my mind the question of whether or not the name of this book should be Mattering. Because Cyrus is a dissolute, alcoholic, drug addict, reaching the age when he realizes he has to do something to make his life matter. Yeah. And that's when he sets out to write his book about martyrs. And I was wondering why you chose to emphasize the martyring as opposed to the mattering. Cyrus is also governed by the specter of death. Both of his parents died young, one violently. And there is also in Iran, this cultural relationship to martyrdom that is completely unique in the world. It is not like anything else, right? And every male Iranian citizen more or less has to, there's compulsory military service, so there's no shortage of soldiers, right? And so they would give these men keys to wear around their necks and call them keys to heaven. And when someone died, you know, the parents would be congratulated, right? And their pictures would be hung in the mosques and in the town square, and they would be called martyrs. And the government still to this day hires 
poets and musicians to go to the these cemeteries of the martyrs and perform for the dead right it's it's this weird sort of intoxicating vertiginous relationship to martyrdom that has you know religious basis but is so tied up in culture and politic that they're inextricable at this point right and so cyrus as an iranian man growing up in America has a relationship to martyrdom that is different than anyone else's, right? And so this idea of making a meaningful death is mitochondrial. You know, it's not just like, let me, you know, make the most difference in my life, right? There's this almost like epigenetic sense uh, that one should die nobly too, Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that is that is part of Cyrus's consciousness and fastens itself to Cyrus's, you know, whatever you want to call it, psychopathology of, of or depression or, you know, spiritual sickness. Right. Of feeling not particularly compelled to stay in the world. Right. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your process. This is your first novel, but you're a poet. You've been published. You've got some game. And so, you know, I'm interested because I think you may be the first author, Cyrus, your main character, is writing poems about martyrs. And I'm interested as Mm -hmm. to what the process is for a poet writing poetry from a fictional character's point of view. (laughs) Yeah. Was that tougher than writing as yourself or did it provide you a freedom that you lacked up until this point? Oh, It was so much fun. I love that you asked this question because it was so much fun for me and I feel like people are sometimes afraid to talk about poetry. And I really feel like those poems are load-bearing in the book. I feel like both in terms of the field of the page and the 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 way, I mean, it's not inert how language enters your vision, how, how language enters your mind. And in terms of building out Cyrus's character and his relationship to things, you know, both those and, you know, <laughs> the dream sequences, which I know I say that phrase and everyone, you know, runs away in terror. You're not supposed to put dream sequences in fiction, but they feel load-bearing to me. They feel really essential, like the house would collapse if you didn't have them. And so I'm really grateful to you for asking that question. I had so much fun getting to know the characters by writing these poems by writing, you know, getting to know what Cyrus thinks about himself and the world and why Cyrus is so obsessed with this idea of martyrdom. You know, it sounds a little hoity-toity or mystical or pie in the sky, you know, but this is really how the character came into clarity for me, you know, and once he's in clarity, you know, I know what he says to people and then I can just sort of imagine their response. You know, it's one of those, the puzzle comes into clarity one piece at a time, right? And those poems are such an essential part of that process for me that it feels like it must be essential for the reader too. If you're trying to understand who this person is and why he's making these decisions and why he's being so stubborn about some things and so obsequious about other things. And so, you know, unable to see the love that's right in front of his face and so many senses, right. Those feel really load bearing to me. So yeah, thank you so much for asking that. I I really loved writing them and drafting them. I don't mean to imply that poetry scares people, but it does some. <laughs> it does and, scare people. Uh, it absolutely scares people. It shouldn't, but it does. So I want to underline and emphasize, because this is a, such a readable book, that the poetry is an adjunct to the novel as opposed to the novel being an adjunct to your poetry. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah. I, as I read it, I was curious. It would seem to me daunting for a poet, published poet, to decide, okay, I'm going to move to novel form. That's a totally different discipline. And yet, with a poet where every word becomes so critical, whether that doesn't make writing a novel harder, does it? 
I have no frame of reference for all poets. You know, I can't, I can't say, you know, I can't speak for all poets, but I can say it was extraordinarily difficult for me. You know, the fact that there's 85,000 words in this book compared to, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 in a book of poetry doesn't mean that I can care eight times less about each word. In fact, every word reverberates and has to have a relationship to every other word. You know, what you say on page 50 still matters on page 250 in a way that is not one-to-one with poetry. And actually, for what it's worth, I think that writing poetry is, it feels to me, again, I don't mean to make like sweeping generalizations or pronouncements about the nature of poetry, but to me, it seems more akin to dance or to statuary than to writing fiction. And I think that fiction, because I, I can I can write, interesting sounding sentences and put them in the mouths of people and have them, you know, volley them back and forth forever. Right. But figuring out how they got into the room together, figuring out what they're doing with their hands while they volley these sentences back together, you know, figuring out how they paid for the meal. Right. You know, and introducing that information in a sort of organic way that doesn't feel like, you know, I have this conversation and then like two blocks of exposition before and after it, you know, if you read Nabokov or Morrison or, you know, when you read the real Titans, right, all of that stuff is utterly invisible. You know, you're just so swept along, right, by their propulsivity and by the enchantment of their language, right? You know, you can be swept along rhythmically or narratively, but one way or the other or both, and the greats do both. And and you and all of this labor is completely invisible. But when that labor isn't done, it's the most obvious thing in the world. You're just reading this starchy, dead fish paragraph, right? And so I didn't assume the hubris of knowing that because I had spent my life learning how to write poetry, I would immediately be able to write a novel. You know, I read two novels a week and watched a movie a day to just sort of Ivy drip narrative into myself through the duration of working on this novel, right? To just understand how people buy their plane tickets and how that information is given to the reader in a not mm-hmm. ham-fisted way, right? Mm-hmm. Figuring out how people walk through doorways and ha- what people do after conversations. And you, you see what I'm saying? Like th- sure. this was the stuff that one never has to think about in a piece of lyric poetry. I, I know I have an ear, you know, if you, re- anyone who reads enough of the Psalms can string pretty words together. You know what I mean? Like you just get a sense of the rhythm and it's just like making a table, you know, you put four legs and a flat surface and it's a table, you know, but like actually creating that narrative mystery, there's no correlative to that in poetry. So Martyr has a lot of different elements. There's poetry, there are imaginary conversations, there are flashbacks, and I'm interested as to how you decided which element came next, which part of the story pushed the next part of the story forward. Well, yeah, you know, there's no there's no sort of quantitative barometer. But I will say that a lifetime spent learning how to write and read lyric poetry, which tends to move orbitally, which tends to move associatively and by leaping, right? You know, you don't often read a poem that says, my great aunt Peggy passed away and I'm sad. I'm so sad that my great aunt Peggy passed away. It is so dreary, her being gone, bear witness to my gloom. You know what I'm saying? Like that doesn't tend to be how lyric poetry works. Keats looks at a nightingale to talk about eternity or Gretchen Urn or, you know, uh, it tends to be whatever you want to call it. Objective correlative is what Eliot called it. Negative capability is what Keats calls it. But there tends to be some synapse between the aboutness, and we call it the tenor in the vehicle, right? But uh, there tends to be a synapse, right? And 
you know that ride at the carnival where you're strapped to the outside of a circle and then it spins you around and then the floor drops out? That tends to be how lyric poetry works, right? And I think interesting narrative can often work that way too. I mean, I don't think, I know plenty of artists write that way. You read Zabald or you read Nabokov or you read Lauren Groff is a contemporary writer who I admire so much who works this way often or Jasmine Ward often works this way, right? But there are so many titans who are so good at keeping you in the ride, even though every vector of centripetal force is pushing you out of it, right? If you, if you were to like chart where this is taking you, it's taking you out of the ride, but it's that utterly perfect, sublime calibration of all of those vectors that holds you in, right? That keeps you in place. And so then the floor drops out. And that's always more interesting to me than plotting directly through the aboutness of like, bear witness to my gloom, you know? I kept seeing in this book what I thought were influences of a poet in transitioning to novel form. You don't write in chapters. There are 32 sections. Sure. Quatrain is a, is a very specific kind of poetry, but that's what I was thinking of. These are sections. There are 32 sections. Sure. It is not written in a linear form. It's very original, I think, in form, in that each one of those sections really sort of stands by itself as a section of a lyric poet, a poem can. And I kept thinking, can he stick the landing? Can he <laughs> bring this together <laughs> at the end? and make yeah. all of these disparate parts fit organically. And you do, I think, so very well. And so I thought, you know, when he finished this, that's when he put the exclamation point on the word martyr, which is in the title. <laughs> Did you feel as you were writing, I have to find a way to bring all of these disparate parts of these 30 preceding sections together and make it work? Yeah, I mean, first of all, nothing could be more gratifying than hearing that you felt that I stuck the landing. I mean, I'm sure that people will read it and disagree, but that's so profoundly gratifying to hear. Because again, you know, that's the whole calibration and nobody, everyone who, you know, my spouse knew the plot of the book years before I wrote it. You know, I mean, I'm talking about these ideas and we're taking walks and thinking about these things together and bouncing stuff off of them. And so uh, calibrating that, ensuring that it feels both organic and surprising and all of these things, you know, you can't tell until the world tells you, right? And so it's incredibly gratifying to hear. I will say that the way that the book really took shape was that I had this idea for a piece of performance art of someone performing their own dying as Orchidette in the book does. There's an artist who is performing her own dying at the Brooklyn Museum. She has a few weeks left to live and is spending them at the Brooklyn Museum just in a sort of Marina Abramovich artist is present-esque performance um, where people can just come and sit across from her and she'll talk to them about whatever they want to talk about, generally about dying in a culture that is so insulated from death and that, you know, makes up the bodies of the dead and puts them in their best finery before we view them, right? One of the reasons that death and dying is so shocking to us is because we have so little experience with the wild, unhygienic, just mess of it, right? And I think that that just as a standalone art piece has always interested me as conceptually. And one of the beautiful things about fiction is that you can play out these thought experiments. I wanted to ask you one last question about a passage that struck me on page 176. The people found the surplus of psychic bandwidth to consider or even worry over anyone else's interior seemed a bit of an unheralded miracle. It's Iris 
read on a website once that there was a word for this, Sonder, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and as complex as your own. Incredible how naming something like that took nothing away from its stagger. Yeah. Is the reason that you're a writer because of Sonder? <sighs> what a beautiful question. Yeah. Isn't that an extraordinary word, Sonder? You know, the ability to perceive other people's interiority as rich and complex as your own. And I would also argue that that's a big part of recovery. I am in recovery. So I would argue. argue oh, amazing. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, th- yeah. And thank you for your recovery. Yeah. Writing this book is the second hardest thing I've ever done after my decade of sobriety. And I won't say the specific program of recovery that I'm a part of that has brought me here, but it is a program of recovery that celebrates significant intervals of sobriety with chips and tokens. And the first time I held my finished hardback, it it felt identical to the first time I held my one-year token from this program of recovery, you know, because it was just like all of the calls from newcomers and all of the, you know, all of the bad coffee and all of the, you know, cleaning up chairs. And, you know, it, it was that, like, it felt like that, like I was just holding it. Like, here's a decade of my life. You know what I'm saying? And that's something that I really can't talk about to anyone who's not in recovery too, mm-hmm. because it's like the fact that you know, this is all gravy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. this is all like I, a decade ago, I was in my 20s and my liver was abnormal and getting abnormaler. And it was not a sustainable way to be alive. So, this is all gravy. You know, people who made no worse ethical decisions than I did didn't make it. You know what I'm saying? And so, the idea that I get to be here and I get to carry the message that a life without that stuff is still not only possible, but joyful. Mm -hmm. Well, your personal transition is, of course, reflected in Cyrus in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a parallel there, and I think it's... We've talked a lot about the fact that this book is about his contemplation of death and martyrdom, but at the end, I think, and I I hope this isn't giving anything away, I hope it's not a spoiler, he turns from the meaning of death to, to the significance and the joy of living. And that is one of the, I think, beautiful parts of the book. This is a wonderful book. It is. Kaveh, if you would, you'd stand by and we'll give you a few rapid fire questions. And we will get to the rapid fire questions in a minute. But Kate, I want to come back to the question you asked because you absolutely stunned me. You gobsmacked me, as they say, because the paragraph you read, struck me when I read the book is basically inconsequential and I passed right over it. But you found meaning in it that I found extraordinary. First of all, I wondered, had you ever heard the word sonder before? And secondly, how did you know that that paragraph had a lot to do with recovery from alcoholism, the alcoholism that Cyrus has at the beginning of the book? Well, uh, two things. One, on January 31st, it will be 16 years uh, since I've had a drink, but I couldn't do it on my own. I needed recovery. I needed a community around me. And really, you'll find a lot of self-pity in alcoholics and you'll find a lot of anger in alcoholics. You know, everybody sort of says, well, how can my ego be at the center? I'm not arrogant. I hate myself. Well, being full of self-pity still puts you very much at the center of your universe and makes you very much the center of your universe. It puts your ego right in the center. And a really important concept of recovery and of emotional sobriety, which we talk about being really important in recovery, is understanding that everybody around you is having a 360-degree lifetime experience of which you are a supporting actor. 
You may be an important supporting actor if this is your daughter or your son, or you may just be a person who passes around, you know, the background in the selfie. But everybody is having a full-time life experience. And that goes for the person you love who says something to really hurt you or the person who cuts you off in traffic. Well, maybe they're cutting you off in traffic because they're late for something. They've just found out their mother is sick and they have to get to the hospital or what have you. You don't know what anybody else's narrative is and you have to respect it. And if you forget that and you start putting yourself at the center of everything, you are in danger of falling off the wagon. That's a really important part of recovery. And so I'd never heard the word Sonder before, but we've talked in this podcast before about One of the things I love most about really good writing is it puts words to emotions or feelings or concepts that we're not even sure you could have put words to. And when I found the word Sonder, it was almost like my vision sort of hit up against the word. I went, oh my gosh, yes, that's emotional sobriety for me. That's key to the way I live every day is to try and remember. And I don't always win. You know, I'm not going to lie. I still give the fingers sometimes in my car. I do. I'm sorry. I'd love to not. Um, but I'd like to think that my next thought is, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have given the finger because maybe that person's having a really lousy day. And I know what really lousy days are. And that's what's really important, I think, about Sonder and why Sonder is so important to recovery, but also, I think, just to being a human being. Well, I... <laughs> I'm still amazed. You saw that paragraph and you saw what it meant. Sandra, and I looked it up, Sandra, the feeling one has on realizing that every other individual one sees has a life as full and real as one's own in which they are the central character and others, including oneself, have secondary or insignificant roles. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's it's uh, if, good for you. Kiddo. I, I got to tell you, you Sonder is a really important concept. I recommend, you know, not to sound too woo woo, but uh, listeners, if if you can bring a little Sonder into your life, you'd be amazed at how much forgiveness you have in your heart every day. Again, that's a little woo woo for especially for me, uh, but I mean it. We'll get to the rapid fire questions for uh, for Kaveh Akbar after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 
The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com, because everybody needs a girlfriend. Rapid fire questions for Kawai Akbar. Did you terrify your parents when you told them you wanted to be a poet? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, my parents thought that I was going to be a doctor through high school, really. Uh, You know, I I mean, I was a sort of stereotypical, high-achieving, Middle Eastern, mathy science person. I was on academic Super Bowl teams and mathletes and all of these things. And so they had every intention of me going to medical school and being this sort of, you know, very, I mean, it's stereotypical. It's still extraordinarily difficult and all of these things. But that was, and then, you know, I discovered poetry and and then drugs and alcohol sort shortly thereafter and sort of I was off to the races and so then you called them and said mom and dad I'm marrying a poet <laughs> yeah was, the most yeah what was the, the reaction most, then <laughs> the most utterly employable couple in America right <laughs> is two <laughs> two professional poets right but you know we've been very lucky we've been able to you know, our dog is always in kibble. Our cats are always in cat food. We keep the litter, you know. Good stuff. Um, Good stuff. Yeah. We don't need a lot. We need books and kitty litter and dog food. We've asked novelists how they know they're finished with a novel. How do you know you're finished with a poem? You know, there's a there's a famous quote from the French poet Pierre Avery where he says, poem is never finished, only abandoned. And um, <laughs> I mean, you can look at my reading copy of my first book and I'm still making edits to poems as I read them in front of people. We don't revere our poets the way that we should. Yeah. What do you say when you meet somebody at a cocktail party who says, I don't read poetry? Well, you know, first of all, you know, in Iran, poetry is sacrosanct. You know, the old joke is that every Persian house has two books, the Quran and Hafez, the great Persian poet Hafez, and only one of them gets read. (laughs) My job in life is not to try to get people to treat poetry like eating their vegetables. You know what I mean? Like, Like, there are plenty of ways to live a happy, contented, fulfilled life without having this part. Now, it happens that for me, you know, I live in the 811.5 section of the library and I love just pulling things off that shelf and, you know, just inhaling them and learning about new to me authors. And that gives my life texture and meaning. I like poetry the way that I like music, right? I don't have to strap it to a autopsy table and beat a confession out of it. You know, like I, I just <laughs> like having it in the air. You know, I like having it in my mind and on my tongue and in my ears. I can tell that he's a nerd like me, by the way, because he just made a library call number joke. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've spent enough time there that I better know, you know, I know how mm-hmm. to just walk into a library and very quickly find the find the poetry section. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking yeah. the time to talk to us. Yeah, it's really we love it. Love it. Thank you both so much. Thank, it's extraordinarily gratifying to hear, sincerely. And and just the gift of your time and your attention and your conversation is is a profound one. Thank you guys so much. Our conversation with Kaveh Akbar, who I just found fascinating and charming. And 
One of the things that stays with me from this interview is his metaphor or simile. Don't write in. I can't remember if he used like or as. The carnival ride, that great literature is like a carnival ride that experiments with centrifugal force. I feel that way sometimes when I'm reading a really great novel is, oh, and, and we even talked about this a little bit with Niall Williams. Oh, okay. The writer is going to take me a little bit. He's going to push me back a little bit here. And I'm going to have to have faith that, you know, the ride's still going to take me somewhere. And I felt that way with this book. There were elements where I was like, this is fascinating. I wonder if he can do this. And then halfway through, I would forget that I was interested as to whether or not he could do it. And I would get just sort of caught up in the lyricism of it. Yeah. It's a really great ride. And, and again, the fact that it's called martyr with an exclamation point denotes the sense of humor that this novel has. So please don't, don't be frightened off by it in any way. Cause I loved this book and I loved this author. Yeah, you know, do you worry? I wake up occasionally at night and worry that you and I are too much in agreement in the books that we do. <laughs> we should find a book where, where I hate it and you love it. Well, we did that a little bit in horror. We did. We were talking about horror. But we should disagree about some things here. We, we're, in, we're in too much agreement. And that has not been our course of life, Kate, as father and daughter. <laughs> no, it's, it's taken us how many years to get here? I'm going gonna, gonna to turn, what, 48 this year? So 48 years is good. <laughs> have hope, listeners, if you feel this way about your parents. Well, we don't. We, we, we have contradictory. We, we want to make this interesting and we should disagree at some point but the other part of it is that we don't do a novel unless we both agree it's worthy of recommendation but in in this case there was no disagreement at all not even any hesitation not even any qualifications martyr we liked and we do apologize we don't have a independent bookstore this week not because we haven't talked recently to some really interesting ones but cave was so interesting that we let his interview run long and we will get back to a bookstore next week. Anyway, in the meantime, let us remind you of the folks who make this podcast possible, and then we will have a coda from Kaveh Akbar to take us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Asal Esanapur is our producer. Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas Baker at ABC Audio. What popped into my head was George Oppen saying, uh, there will be no other words in the world but those our children speak. So the language that we pass to our children, the language that survives us, will be the words that populate the world, right? That's, there will be no other words in the world but those our children speak. Thank you.